A brief word from two of our podcast sponsors. The first, the Division of Emergency Medicine here at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. In collaboration with our colleagues from Boston Children's Hospital, we'll be hosting a live CME event in Philadelphia on November 2nd and November 3rd. The title of the conference is Pediatric Emergency Medicine in Practice, an interactive and innovative course for real-world experience. This course will be hands-on and interactive, featuring small group case discussions, workshops, high-fidelity simulation, and a procedure fair. Just Google CHOP CME Cloud for more information and how to register for this amazing Pediatric Emergency Medicine Conference. Our other sponsor, Our Baby Foundation, under the tutelage of Phyllis Rabinowitz, continues to do excellent work in saving the lives of infants and children who present to emergency rooms in this country. Please follow Our Baby Foundation on their website, ourbabyfoundation.org, or you can also get additional information on Facebook and Instagram. And most importantly, download the Find ER Now app to see which hospitals in your area are equipped to handle pediatric emergencies. Welcome back to the CHOP Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. Today's topic is mental health emergencies, and shortly I'll be joined by one of my colleagues, Dr. Jeremy Esposito, to talk about this crisis, a crisis that we deal with pretty much in every shift that we work in in the emergency department. First, a word about one of our sponsors, Our Baby Foundation. Our Baby Foundation is the first and only charitable foundation uniquely focused on saving babies and children's lives through improving pediatric emergency care. Since its founding in 2006, Our Baby has raised more than $13 million to fund grants for life-saving pediatric emergency education, rapid viral testing, communication programs between doctors and patients, cutting-edge research grants, and infant mannequin simulation training programs. Our Baby's grants impact the care of more than 1 million children each year in the United States and overseas. Visit www.rbabyfoundation.org for more information. April 23rd, 2022, a New York Times headline read, It's life or death, the mental health crisis among U.S. teenagers. We have all seen and read these articles. Those of us who work in the emergency departments have all been impacted by this mental health crisis. What has been done? What can we do? Well, to help us answer some of those questions, I want to welcome one of my colleagues at CHOP and attending in the pediatric ER, Dr. Jeremy Esposito. Welcome to the CHOP PEM podcast, Jeremy. Thanks, Bob, for having me. Jeremy, we're going to talk a lot about mental health in the emergency department, What motivated you, Jeremy, to sort of take the lead, not only at CHOP, but regionally and nationally in attempting to tackle this behavioral health crisis? Well, that's a a long story, but I'll try to shorten it as as best as I can. So my interest in mental health began before I entered medicine. And really, when I was a teenager, I actually struggled myself with coming out as gay. And 
um, had thoughts of suicide and thankfully sought help at the time. And since then, I really did become involved in trying to understand suicide prevention efforts in our country and, and try to see how our country is doing in, in improving the situation. And as I went through college and in medical school, I heard these great stories about how federal government was working on strategic plans to reduce suicide. And saw a lot of great things that were happening actually in legislation where um, actually when I was in college in Washington, D.C., there was a, a Garrett Lee Smith Memorial Act that was introduced after a U.S. senator's son died by suicide. And that gave me a lot of hope at the time that resources were going to be put into youth suicide prevention efforts. And then as I went through my training and eventually came to CHOP, saw that a lot of people were, were tackling mental health, but it just wasn't enough. There's a lot of things that are out of our control. And I really wanted to make sure that, you know, I was able to keep my passion and very lucky to be at CHOP and have the support to be able to work on these efforts in addition to caring for the patients that, that, that we have. Um, so along the way, I've been trying to tackle it as much as I, as I can with a lot of great people and here to talk a little bit more about that. Great. Thank you, Jeremy, for sharing that story with our listeners. Jeremy, I have a unique introduction for this podcast. Here goes. A proclamation is an official announcement that publicly recognizes an initiative. Proclamations serve to signal to people that an issue matters. Proclamations are typically signed and issued by governors, state legislators, or mayors. Jeremy, I appoint you the mayor of emergency room pediatric behavioral health and would now like to read the CHOP Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast's Emergency Room Behavioral Health Proclamation. Ready, Jeremy? All righty, Bob. Okay. Whereas the increase in the number of children presenting to ERs with behavioral health chief complaints has reached crisis levels, whereas huge shortages of mental health resources for children, including doctors, therapists, and bed resources currently exist, whereas the emergency room, Jeremy, should be the last resort for behavioral health patients in crisis, not the only resort. Whereas mental health revisits to pediatric ERs are much higher than bounce back rates for asthma, bronchiolitis, pneumonia patients. I got a few more, Jeremy. Whereas boarding of patients with suicidal ideation in the pediatric ED, while increasing, is detrimental to these children, whereas management of behavioral health patients with chemical or physical restraints has increased dramatically. Now, therefore, the CHOP Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast yields the floor to Dr. Jeremy Esposito to opine and give his expert evidence toward relieving this plight. All right, Jeremy, you got five minutes. What do you have to say? No. No, 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 seriously. So let's touch upon some of those, Jeremy, and let's really start with the scope of the crisis. This happened before COVID. I know you're going to talk a lot about COVID, but even pre-COVID, ER visits for all medical causes were increasing about one to one and a half percent annually, whereas mental health visits were increasing at a rate of approximately eight to 10 percent annually. Obviously, during COVID, we all know, and I'm sure you'll share with us, how behavioral health visits have skyrocketed. Jeremy, what are the drivers? What are the contributors to this increase? Thanks, Bob. I think you started to outline some of the barriers. And really, I think 
it's important first to understand how we got here and why patients are coming to the ER. And it's definitely appropriate for patients to come. Um, if there's nowhere else to go, it will always be a safety net. But really, I think it's important to acknowledge that healthcare systems in general have done a poor job at integrating mental health care over the decades. And really, suicide has been the second to the third leading cause of, of death among our youth for, for decades, even before COVID. And COVID has definitely exacerbated the need for, for mental health care. But really, advances in medical and surgical care have left, left mental health in the dust. And when you add up the fourth through 20th leading causes of death for, for um, youth in our country, they still don't add up to the amount of patients that die by suicide or youth that die by suicide. And, and I was speaking a little bit about you know, my experience over 20 years ago and just watching our, our country deal with this, the, the pace of the solutions has really not met up with, with the need of our, of our patients and families. And so, you know, my call, of act, call to action is to accelerate the pace of mental health integration into healthcare settings and really try to make it so that, you know, everyone feels comfortable with addressing um, patients' mental health concerns as well as any other concerns that they may have. You know, certain barriers you started to highlight, such as limited limited mental health providers in the community. There's some studies that show that half of the counties in the country don't have a psychiatrist. Um, so that's not just a problem for, for youth, but also for adults. There's mental health stigma for both providers and for patients and families feeling uncomfortable with talking about it. Um, and that may be because, you know, pe people may have their own experiences and may feel uncomfortable or not know how to talk about it given that a lot of uh, non-behavioral health clinicians, especially pediatric emergency medicine providers and other medical health care providers, didn't get a lot of training in their residency or, or fellowship around uh, mental health, which is definitely improving over the years, and it's it's great to see. And there's also cost and insurance barriers that families face, uh, families face and also transportation difficulties, and I could probably go on and on a little bit. Um, that, that's a good list. And again, I think you covered most of the big issues. COVID, of course, everyone says exacerbated it. In what ways? So uh, so really, the the outpatient resources that were already limited are became even more limited. So not being able to physically go to see a provider became a barrier. And then patients being isolated at home without a lot of social connection, even though their social media and we know social media in and of itself can um, impact a, a child's and youth's mental health. We know that there was sometimes nowhere else to go and couldn't go to the primary care's office, even though telehealth was starting to, to come about, it still wasn't meeting the need at the time. Great. Jeremy, you alluded to social media. Of course, we all blame social media. Give us some specific examples that you've come across how social media specifically worsens uh, our pediatric patients' behavioral and mental health. Well, Bob, so I think many people will, will agree that when we take care of patients in the ER, we hear not only their stories of why they came in, but we hear about other things that are going on in their lives and difficulties. And some of our patients are on their phones when we're evaluating them. And we, we hear stories about body image difficulties with there's always a, a person or celebrity or influencer that is, you know, trying to promote a certain look and seeing the patients are trying to live up to that. And that has definitely impacted their mental health and seeing that more patients with eating disorders are presenting and having comorbid mental health concerns as well. And then just bullying that goes on on social media has been a big problem. 
where, you know, even when parents or guardians do their best to try to control what their children are seeing, kids are finding a way to get around it and are still being bullied and, and sometimes not speaking up about what's happening. And that internalizes their, their feelings a lot more and sometimes doesn't present itself until they come to the ER. Yeah, we're going to talk, Jeremy, in a little bit about some of the initiatives that you have uh, led at CHOP and, and both regionally and nationally. Jeremy, can we use social media? Ch- children, teenagers especially, are not going to be getting off social media. I mean, they guard that phone uh, like it's their uh, uh, most valued possession. Can we use social media to our advantage in, in reaching out and, quote, treating this crisis? Yeah, uh, that's a great point, Bob. So social media, we have to, I think, use it to our advantage to promote that there's resources that are available in the community. For example, for LGBTQ plus youth, the Trevor Project and other organizations around the country um, are are there for, for youth to tell them that they're not alone. Um, in, institutions like CHOP, we have our own social media sites that also promote resources for the community, for patients and families, and just letting people know also that it's okay to talk about mental health. Just even talking about mental health is something that can go a long way for for someone when they hear that it's okay, that important people are talking about it, that they ha- may have experienced it themselves. Um, maybe I feel more comfortable with, with sharing my experience with someone else, and it can just um, snowball in a good way from there, hopefully. Jeremy, let me talk about one specific uh, social media platform. I personally am not on it, but I know many of our colleagues and, and children are. TikTok. Are there any initiatives, again, that you, your group, or you know nationally are trying to reach the children on TikTok? Because again, rarely are these teenagers going to lock onto the CHOP website to, to find some of the uh, resources that, that you just mentioned. Yeah, I, th- I think that's the, the future. There probably are people that are doing doing that through TikTok. I am unfortunately not too tech savvy yet, but I can get back to you on that. Okay. Thank you, Jeremy. Let me refer our listeners, Jeremy, to a JAMA Pediatrics article published in December of 2022. They looked at over 300,000 pediatric mental health ER visits. They found that those with impulse control disorders and psychotic disorder presentations were 35 to 40% more likely to revisit the emergency department within six months. Jeremy, as you know, our division and most ER divisions look at bounce back rates. We use it as a measure of quality. In other words, we look at our asthmatics, bronchiolitis, see how frequently they bounce back. The frequency of revisits for mental health disorders, specifically the ones I mentioned, suggests that the care in emergency rooms is really not adequate, yet it is the only option. So maybe now is a little, uh, let me give you a little uh, room here to talk about, they're going to show up, Jeremy. They have a high bounce back rate. What we, we know the care is as good as we can. We know we need more resources, but maybe now is time for you to tell us some of the things that you're doing at CHOP and that can be generalized to other ERs to make sure, A, they're getting and I have my hands up, adequately treated, but also to reduce this tremendous number of bounce backs, revisits that we see in this population. Sure. So I think there are a lot of things that I can say, but I'll start with talking about just using the crisis as an opportunity. With every crisis, there there is an opportunity. When COVID happened, just COVID itself, everyone mobilized to try to solve a problem. And I think 
a similar approach, especially in emergency medicine, where we're very used to using a team approach and really must use a team approach in order for the best chance of success. You know, we have the advantage of, of being in the ER of seeing a lot of patterns over time. And so with the patterns that we see um, and the lived experiences that our staff, you know, whether it's nursing, social work, um, some of our other behavioral health clinicians, ED physicians, environmental services, et cetera, we're all seeing patterns over time and really using our voice. And it's our job to identify and address emergencies as emergency medicine providers and uh, speaking out beyond the ED and letting others know that we can't do it alone. There are things that are out of our control, but what can we control so that we can then influence the things that are out of our control? So for example, there are ways to address mental health stigma in the emergency room. So highlighting that it's important for us to do screening or talk about mental health among our staff and patients, and then actually showing them data and stories, for example, and that's helped motivate our, our staff and actually help with the culture change over the years where we say, you know, look, you screened a patient who presented with an ankle injury. They screened positive for suicide or depression. We evaluated them and we actually connected them to resources. That's a success story, especially when you know, I go back to the fact that suicide is the second to third leading cause of death. And we're always constantly thinking about things that, that could harm or, or kill our, our patients. There's other examples. So um, when COVID happened, we experienced an increase in our boarding uh, patients who are waiting inpatient psychiatric hospitalization. And, and with that, you know, there are certainly patients that do require inpatient psychiatric hospitalization, but there are definitely opportunities and our goal should be to try to discharge patients for community resources. And using the team approach, we were able to come together during COVID and with prolonged lengths of stay for boarding, sometimes reaching several several weeks and trying to face that as, as staff, knowing that you know there's limited things that we can do. But what that helped us strategize is coming up with things like a daily schedule for, for patients to try to have some consistency. Those are things that we can control maybe having consistent staff that the patient sees if they're going to be boarding with us, perhaps, you know, advocating to hospital leadership and administration that, you know, using data in the stories that this is, that we need more mental health providers to help with our assessments or possibly initiating treatment while they're waiting. We're actually able to implement those interventions in real, in real life at CHOP and very fortunate to have those resources. And we're able to show that we're, uh, discharging patients to the community instead of admitting them to inpatient in, inpatient psychiatric hospitalization. Jeremy, the, the point about educating staff, I think, is huge, not only at CHOP, but uh, for all ERs, because I'll be honest, Jeremy, when we see that chief complaint, and it's a behavioral health chief complaint, you know, I don't see the residents or the attendings quickly signing up or the nurses for those patients. Again, we have favored patients and not so favored patients in the ED. I would venture to say, Jeremy, the behavioral health Patients are not our favorite patients when they present. So I think the education that you're doing at CHOP is very generalizable, like I said, to, to general EDs and other children's hospitals, EDs across the country. Right, Bob. And that's really going back to the result of not talking about it for, for several, you know, for several decades and not integrating into training as well. So it will take time for us to get to ideal state, but we all have to start somewhere. 
Okay, you sort of alluded to boarding, Jeremy. Let me. I think most of our listeners know what boarding means. Let me give you a quick definition. Uh, boarding is the practice of holding patients in the ER after the decision to admit or transfer has been made. New York Times again, May 2022. Headline, hundreds of suicidal teens sleep in emergency rooms, period. Every night period. And again, they went on to describe they're sleeping in what they call psych safe rooms, no electronics. A child was quoted as saying the room was padded, insane asylum-like, all you see is walls. As you alluded to during the pandemic at CHOP and even other children's hospitals, the duration of boarding sometimes exceeded seven to 10 days. And on the other side of it, by boarding all these patients, we have less rooms available to take care of patients with other chief complaints. A study in JAMA, November 2021, abstracted and said that anywhere from 1,000 to 5,000 children board each night in the nation's 4,000 emergency departments. Jeremy, you say what? Well, Bob, I always said when I hear stats like that, and it really motivates me to keep doing what I'm trying to do. And again, I'm lucky to work with a lot of people who also have uh, interest and investment in improving care, which we all could change everything all at once. And part of it is understanding why there's why there's boarding. It's not a problem that happened before after COVID It happened before COVID. But um, given that inpatient psychiatric hospitalizations had to sometimes deny patients because they're waiting for a COVID test to be negative, or they ran out of beds or had to close their units because of staff shortages, or either even um, intensive outpatient services like partial hospitalization or intensive outpatient therapy, those became limited because staff couldn't staff them. And so patients were deemed the safest situation was to have them um, be admitted to inpatient hospitalization instead of going home, if that was the best option. And to that, I say, it just highlights that what we see in the ED, we have to make sure that we're partnering with people outside of the ED um, as well to advocate for the things that we can't control as best as we can, given that there's a lot of things going on in, in the ED every day. I think we have to go back to what I was mentioning before about thinking about creating a daily schedule things that we could do in the environment for a room to, you know, make it more comfortable if a patient is going to be staying, even though that is not the, the long-term solution for the boarding crisis. It's, it's something that there are steps that, that people can take to minimize the, the trauma that patients or staff even feel. Jeremy, you talked about this daily schedule. Talk about some of the components of it. Like, what does the schedule look like? Sure. So some, some ERs, you know, we're very blessed to have a child life therapist in the ED and our child life therapists have been great working with our social work team and nursing teams to think about a daily schedule where patients aren't sleeping with the lights off throughout the day. So we're you know turning the lights on in the morning, we're eating breakfast, we're doing our ADLs. If they're missing school for a certain number of days, making sure that there's help with school. And then there's activities, playtime, using the, our safety observers who are with the patient one-on-one having them be part of the care team where not only making sure that the patient is safe, but also helping to implement some of the daily schedule and discuss things like coping skills, um, involving the family if the family is there, things like that. Great. Jeremy, you and your colleagues, uh, specifically at CHOP, have been have spent hours uh, composing uh, the behavioral health 
CHOP pathway uh, and a plug to the pathway. You can go on chop.edu or just Google CHOP pathways and uh, visualize the behavior health pathway, which has a ton of information. Jeremy, let's sort of start, again, very generalizable to our general EDs also, de-escalating strategies. So a patient comes in, they may be agitated, loud, aggressive. Talk to us again. I know this is in the pathway, but talk to some of the, instead of the list that you have in the pathway, talk to us about some of the successful de-escalating strategies. I know, again, it's patient-specific that you've seen work not only at shop, but can be implemented uh, in other ERs across the country. That's a good question, Bob. So agitation management, especially in the ER, is, is a hot topic across the nation. And, you know, my my sense is that there's going to be more people coming together to do a better job at our, our approach. Um, the pathway that we currently have, so thanks thanks for the plug, is, is actually live or updated just last month where we're trying to do a better job at not being reactive to agitation as much, but doing a, a better job at listening and understanding why a patient is agitated um, and really assessing our current practices about what we're currently doing and knowing that the ED is a unique setting where we're very lucky to have a lot of people close by, but sometimes having 20 people go towards the patient's room can can be or is, is inappropriate um, and really should be using trauma-informed care and, and, and ideally trying to identify patients at risk early on. So for example, you know, a patient comes through the waiting room or through EMS and is acutely agitated there's definitely opportunities for us as a team in the ER to huddle together. So that includes the outside, you know, the nurse, the the doc, social work if if available. But um, we're very lucky to have with our, our safety observers who are our behavioral health clinicians to huddle together and and think about this patient's history, um, what is triggering the patient in this moment, whether it's you know, is it a family member, and if so. Potentially, that's the solution. We has just separate the family member for a little while until things cool off. Um, are there other things that we can do where we, you know, move other patients so that we create a more calm environment around, you know, this situation? It may help, you know, if there's a younger child in the next room, it may help that family feel more comfortable too. But most importantly, um, give space for um, for us to deal with an acutely agitated patient. And then, I think, um, in addition to uh, the team huddles and, and understanding the, the reason why and the triggers is thinking about the least restrictive um, interventions first, things I started to mention, but also um, dimming the lights, providing comfort, things like providing food. Um, and then if there's a need for medications, just like there's, like we treat signs and symptoms all the time with a headache, it's, it's not a failure if we do give a medication for agitation. Um, but our goal should be to avoid uh, physical restraints. Great. Thank you, Jeremy. And again, I think patience is a virtue. Uh, we in the ER, busy ER, these patients arrive. We like to fix things quickly, like to go into Epic and just order a medication. And we know chemical and physical restraints over the last 10 years, studies shown that the use of both chemical and physical restraints has increased by over 400%. So we'll use the de-escalating strategies first. Hopefully they're successful in the smaller subset of patients, Jeremy, who need, let's start with chemical restraints first. Uh, again, a long list in the pathway of all the different medications. What's your go-to medication or is it patient dependent? So first I'll say, um, as, a, as a caveat, that 
the language around chemical restraints can be tricky. We try not to say that really when we give a medication, it's not for a chemical restraint, even if we're holding a patient down to give a medication. But when we think about medications, there are some go-tos, especially Benadryl or diphenhydramine or lorazepam are examples. But more recently, we're starting to lean towards using medications based on the reasons why a patient is agitated. Um, so there's an example, a couple of years ago, um, emergency psychiatrists developed the beta guidelines, which um, helped kind of stratify how we give medications for delirium versus if, if a patient's agitated with a history of de developmental delay or autism versus substance use. So there are there is a lot of overlap, but there are some medications that you should avoid in, in certain populations, which you know, either could have the wrong effect or or um, uh, uh, a poor a poor outcome or ineffective. Great, Jeremy. We we talked about the patient, but again, we're always concerned about us, the physicians, our nurses, social workers, child life potential harm to the staff. Tell us how you balance uh, the, the har potential harm to the staff with the agitated patient and these de-escalating or need for medications or, or even more restraint. Yeah. So, I mean, physical restraints definitely need to be thought about or used when all other de-escalation strategies have failed and there's a risk to the patient and our staff. So if this, the safety of the patient or staff is at risk, then restraint should be used until the situation has calmed down. Um, but if that is, if that approach is utilized, you know, I'm advocating for, and I'm hoping, you know, others will, will agree is to treating a restraint event like a behavioral health code. Um, some institutions have their own, you know, code teams that are rotating throughout the hospital that may go to a specific unit if a patient is escalating, but that may take 15 minutes for them or longer to get to the ER. So it may not be helpful in the moment, but it may help with overall de-escalations. But, you know, just like a medical code where we have clear roles and responsibilities and closed loop communication and things like avoiding to overcrowd, those same principles can be applied to a behavioral health code where, you know, there's a staged approach where we, we know that this person is doing a hold, this person is potentially gathering medications, another person is recording, and then leaders to help synthesize the information and, and, and anticipate next steps and communicating with um, the family too if they're there. I think, Jeremy, that, that's an excellent and a unique way to look at it. I just know from my experience, at least the documentation when we use physical restraints matches the documentation for a code. A lot of documentation, but you're saying bring in other resources, assign roles similar to what we do when we have a, a cardiac arrest uh, in the ED. Exactly, Bob. So, for example, the same nurses that you may identify as nurse right or nurse left in our resuscitation room, you could use similar approach where, you know, this person knows at the beginning of the shift that if there is an event, you know, the bedside nurse will do this, but then we have the safety observer or security who is providing the hold and that the people that are trained to do that are the ones that are doing it. And then having someone document, which part of it is also joint commission regulated, but I agree with you, the documentation can be tricky, but not as important as the moment itself. Correct. Jeremy, I want you to take a step away from your sort of day-to-day -day responsibilities to CHOP and look more broadly. Let's look nationally. Obviously, the Surgeon General, President Biden, I've seen proclamations where they declare that we are in a mental health emergency. Give us some information that sort of you follow or you contribute uh, to at the nat either the state or even the national level uh, regarding how this mental health crisis is going to be turned around. 
So there, there's a lot of people doing a lot of great things. And I think, you know, first of all, we need more people to be involved and speak up um, and also more resources, not only from healthcare systems, but almost like a resuscitation. So that's something that I advocate for um, on a day-to-day basis for treating mental health crisis, like a resuscitation of a critically ill child, where there's not only healthcare providers can solve the solution, it's going to take legislators, insurance companies, schools, communities, local communities, and, and cultural and community state uh, contributors to to help solve the problems. Social and social media is also part of the, the solution or people that need to be at the table. Um, so organizations like the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, the American Academy of Pediatrics um, are coming together on a national level. Um, outside of the ER, just general principles with the American Academy of Pediatrics, there's the mental health toolkit that has a lot of great resources for for people to uh, reference about how to, you know, build a team, uh, how to build things like data and quality interventions, and then training for clinicians and, and staff. Great. Jeremy, as we conclude, uh, just a few closing questions. Uh, a lot of general emergency department physicians and nurses and also children's hospital physicians and nurses who work in ERs are listening Give them two or three words of advice. Obviously, look at the pathway. I think the pathway has so many resources, the CHOP Pediatric Emergency Pathway on Behavioral Health. But narrate for us a few things that they could take back to their ER during their next shift or their next division meeting uh, to help combat this crisis. That's a great, that's a great question, Bob. So I have a few things that that I can share that people hopefully can adapt for their own institution and um, steps to consider. So one I would say is to try to build the team wherever you are of behavioral health champions, knowing that you're not going to be able to solve the problem alone, but if you have a diverse group that is working together to monitor the situation, brainstorm ideas, you have to start somewhere. And no matter how small you think it is, you have to pilot something. If, if you know you're not there yet, start somewhere and really starting with the things that you can control. So I mentioned before, step education, addressing mental health stigma, modifying your care models, and, and really using a multidisciplinary collaboration. And then planning for what seems out of control at the moment. So gathering your data and stories, you bring that not only to your ED staff, but you bring it to the hospital leaders, you bring it to um, you know your medical subspecialists, uh, primary care, and help you know show people what's going on so that they know the situation and help uh, brainstorm ideas of solutions. And sometimes I find that when I go to a meeting outside of the ED with people that don't work in the ED, there's a lot of surprise around, oh, this is happening. So the more that we can sound the alarm consistently, which we're very used to, you know, when we identify emergency, we just need to be consistent with sounding the alarm and being patient until things happen, which is difficult to do when we know it's a crisis. Some great points, Jeremy. Let me close by the last question. Obviously, a lot of negative aspects of COVID. But like we talked about, the mental health crisis was here before COVID. It was exacerbated by COVID. Can you say that COVID actually helped your cause by bringing mental health emergencies to the forefront of both local, state, and our federal legislatures? Uh, That's a great question, Bob. I I definitely think COVID helped um, increase awareness and helped accelerate some of the change that, that we've been advocating for. It's going back to the, the boarding example that I gave that was during COVID and 
seeing patients that were going beyond the recommended joint commission of four hours of boarding, which is not realistic and or or what's happening. Um, and patients waiting three weeks, it was helpful to have staff come together. And when our leadership heard these stories and saw the data, they helped give us resources. And so those resources is really what helped us accelerate some of the changes that we were able to do um, during and, and after COVID. Great, Jeremy. On behalf of myself and the entire Chop Pen podcast team, I want to actually applaud you for all the work you are doing, not only in West Philadelphia at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, but locally, regionally, and nationally. And uh, I hope we don't have to have you back on the podcast, Jeremy, because all of the whereas I listed in the proclamation, hopefully many of those will disappear over the next few years with all the work you and your colleagues are performing. Thanks for having me, Bob. I hope so too. Thanks, Jeremy.